0: We're going to continue our study through the book of Nehemiah this morning. So if you would take a Bible that you brought, or if you need one, there's some in front of you in the pew. Turn to page 399, where we'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4. We'll get ourselves situated there, and if you would, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we look to you now as great and awesome God. Help us to remember you in this time. And to act in faith going from here so that your name would be made great in all the world. Holy Spirit, move in us as we must have you do. And work great things as you would deem them to be great among us. In Jesus' name, amen. We humans have a funny way of measuring greatness called the Guinness Book of World Records. I used to love reading those as a kid. I I think, kind of cynically, as a child, I was trying to find what I thought was a silly thing for people to gloat about like the largest ball of rubber bands or the biggest pancake. And then, in God's providence, I moved to Dubai, where you will regularly see in that city plaques set up celebrating the city's achievement in being a Guinness world record holder. The world's largest gold ring. The world's largest pane of acrylic glass. The world's only seven-star hotel. We humans can be desperate to achieve greatness. I vividly remember a conversation I had with my college roommate in all seriousness saying that I felt that I was made to do great things. And as I recall that conversation, I really don't remember being proud when I said it. 20 years later... It's not that I have stopped now wanting to do great things. I just came to understand how hard that is. You get older and the materials you have to work with are weaker than you thought. The doors just don't open for you. You've got to exert a lot of energy to pound on them, let alone see them open. And as your life twists and turns in ways unexpected and unplanned, you look to a future of greatness with a lot less Certainty. I wonder if you've dreamed your dreams of greatness. I wonder if they seem so fresh to you that you come here even now eager to achieve them. Perhaps your dreams are not now as you've gotten older or disappointments have come. Maybe they're not completely forgotten, but they have been pushed back into your mind, back into the past. Or maybe you're here this morning, you can't even remember entertaining a notion that you'd be or do anything but at best average. What makes a great thing great? Is greatness determined by scope or size? By acclaim or reward? By accolades or human achievements? Well, I hope to persuade you this morning that the truly great things are not the things we are doing ourselves. But what God is doing in and through us. Now, I would fail in my aim this morning if because of what I might say here, you or I left here thinking we can be great on our own. I do not want you to believe that. I want you to leave here hopeful that God can use us to promote his greatness. To convince us that our lives are not meant for an empty pursuit of human greatness like Guinness books of world records. But to be available for God to advance his great purposes in us and through us. In other words, greatness is not something we pursue. It is what God pursues in us. The path to being used by God for greatness is in remembering him, that he is great and awesome. And this becomes the starting point for a life that can be used for truly great things. Now, I just said remembering him is the starting point. Let me just explain what I mean by remembering, as we'll see in a moment, picking this language up from a key verse in our passage. What I simply mean is believing who God is and acting like we do believe that. Faith plus work. And remembering, as we know, is the opposite of forgetting. So I don't want you to forget God. Forgetting who he is and then acting like we do. Unbelief leading to error. Nehemiah tells Israel in this passage what we need to hear. We must remember God and not forget him. As we pick up the story in Nehemiah 3, some Jews, to remind us of the context, have returned from Persian exile, an exile that happened because Israel forgot about their God. Now these exiles are back following the lead of a man named Nehemiah who he himself is acting on a desire he has that God has given him to see the broken down walls of the city of Jerusalem rebuilt. Nehemiah miraculously as we saw last time is given permission and resources by a a foreign king, King Artaxerxes and he manages to rally the people to this work. And so as chapter 3 opens the work begins on the wall. But the challenges to the work and the obstacles abound. If the people are to to succeed, they will need God. And so a kind of theme verse in this passage is chapter 4, verse 14. Just flip there quickly and I read it. Nehemiah says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In Israel's story, there are three specific things that I want us to see things for us, specific things to remember about our great and awesome God in three arenas of our lives. So, we're going to, the outline is going to be specific things to remember about God, three specific things in three areas of our life. The areas are these in our weakness, in adversity, and in uncertainty. We're going to be remembering things about our great and awesome God specific to these arenas. And as we do that, my prayer is that remembering our great God will, in fact, be a starting point for God doing great things in us even this week. So the first point of, of three points, first observation, first specific thing to see here is this. In our weakness... Remember that God does great things through us. So we live and work in dependence on him. In our weakness, remember that God does great things through us. So we live and work in dependence on him. Look at chapter 3 of Nehemiah and the first three verses. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Henehel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And as you keep reading, as you might want to do later today, I'm not going to read any more of chapter 3. But if you did... You would see here that the rest of the chapter keeps on like this. Going through all the seven major gates that made up the the kind of structure of the wall around Jerusalem. Roughly a mile and a half to two mile project. And this list enumerates about 40 different groups who are working on this wall together. Now if you read through the chapter, you would see that none of these people are construction specialists. There are rulers, there are priests, there are perfumers, there are families, there are merchants and goldsmiths, sons and daughters. And if you remember from last week, we also recall Nehemiah does not have any known skills in project management. He was a cupbearer. The resources they have to build with aren't great either. They're simply taking the, the rubble from the walls that got run through and burned in their exile and they're restacking them. <laughs> Which makes you wonder how good was the finished product going to be when it's all done? Probably not as good as it used to be, likely not war grade kind of thing. And yet, in very little time, as we see in chapter 4, verse 6, the walls halfway built, the wall went up. And even though the workers and the resources were weak, progress continues. God works through weakness. The Bible illustrates and states this principle over and over and over again. You cannot miss it. Whether Abraham, the childless old man who was supposed to father the nations. Or Moses, the inarticulate spokesperson of, of Israel in slavery. Or Samson, who likely had little muscles, just long hair. To David, the teenager with boy weapons fighting a big giant. Or Jesus, the man nailed to a cross who saved the world. Paul states the principle in his own trial. God says to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he'll write again, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Remember God, that he's great and awesome even to be able to work through our weakness. And when we forget God, then we despair over our weakness or we try to compensate for our weakness with pride. So if you're here and you're despairing this morning, I I want you to know that there is actually an element of truth in our despair that leads us to despair. If it all depends on us, the work is too big and the progress is too hard and we are too weak. That's all true. The world is too big, the problem's too great, the brokenness too deep to think that any or all of us could come up with a solution to the kinds of things we were praying about earlier. But are we only seeing half the truth in our despair? Does it really only and all depend on you or me or humanity to solve? Remember. The one true God offers to take our load. (laughs) The same God who holds the entire world. Remember, the words that invite you to cast your cares on him come from the mouth of the one who casts the stars across the heavens. Remember God who is great and awesome, despairing one, and then you will be able to hope in him, even in your weakness. Perhaps some of us now are responding not to our weakness with despair, but with pride. Because we're trying to compensate for our weaknesses with our own efforts. Friends, pride does not make power where there was weakness. It doesn't work like that. Pride... Just ignores the obvious and operates under the delusion that if we just put our minds and efforts to it, we can change our nature as we've been made as limited, finite creatures. It can't happen. It won't happen. No matter how much pride you have, we must disavow ourselves of the notion that we can do great things without God or that we only need God to supplement our inherent greatness that we were born with. No, God chooses to use us for the things he chooses, which means for us that whatever gifts or talents or abilities he's given you or weaknesses, deficiencies, disabilities that he in his perfect wisdom has chosen to hand to you, whatever you possess, God can make greatness from them if he wants. God's word is showing us that God chooses to use weakness to demonstrate his greatness. These are not great people. (laughs) These less than awesome walls. And yet we'll see in this book. God keeps them safe. Because he's great and awesome. Is there anyone here I wonder right now. Who doesn't believe God can or will do great things through weakness. If so I'd love to tell you about Jesus. Prince of Heaven, the Son of God, became a child, became a baby, born under the most humble circumstances. Lived a life of of opposition and ridicule. He was scoffed at. Scripture says people looked at him, didn't see anything special. Certainly not the kinds of things that we make a big deal about. He had nothing about him that was lovely to people who saw him and. He came in total weakness. And he came as the king of the world and he died on a cross. He let himself be executed by people he made. I'm going to tell you about that kind of weakness. Deliberate weakness. God chose to come in weakness and die in seeming weakness. So that what he could do is accomplished victory over the thing that we could never have power over ourselves. He came to die for us so that the sin that we're born with, that we commit every day, that we were enslaved to, Jesus came in the unthinkable way in weakness so that through taking our sin on the cross, he might rise victorious and pronounce that he had defeated sin and death for any who would believe in him. Can God work through weakness? Let me show you Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Savior for you and any who will trust in him. When we remember this, God and his gospel, then we can own our weakness and and boast in it in a way so that God will be great in it. So if you're here and you're struggling with chronic illness, you can say, look at my chronic illness. God is going to sustain me in that when most people think I should just give up. Look at my disability. God's going to use me to strengthen others through how I live on his strength. Look at my failures. God's going to show people that he can make family out of failures. Look at the under-credentialed rubbish heap that walked into this building this morning. He's going to make something beautiful out of us, and he already is. Even though the people were weak and they likely knew it, they kept on working. And I think that's another lesson for us. God works great things in those who, though weak, make themselves available for his purposes. Is that what you're doing with your weakness? Your human limitations are not obstacles in your life. They are catalysts for dependency on God. And when weak people depend on God and God uses them to do his great work, that is the essence of the great life. With all our weakness, with all our known issues, all our problems, we can scoop them up and we can look to God and say to him, even with this Lord, make your name great. Build your kingdom, build your church with your greatness working through our weakness. And That's what he does because he's great and awesome. We live in dependence on God, remembering that our great and awesome God does great things through our weakness. That's the first arena of our life where remembering God helps us to live in faith on Him. Second area is in adversity. In adversity, secondly, big point, remember that our great God fights for us so we can fight and not be afraid. Look at chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 1 through 15. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger. In the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sembalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Amnites and the Ashdodites. Heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward. And that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. And they all plotted to come together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God. And set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Now, likely these people would have known the stories of Israel's glory days, how their armies at one time had routed enemies and walls that had been built withstood every challenge against them. But they would have also heard how one day a powerful army did overrun the strong walls of Jerusalem and took everyone away as slaves. So with that in their mind, now their chances, they recognize least as they could be able to tell with human logic, their chances of surviving an attack now are lower than they'd ever been. They stand behind a half-built wall, and they don't have any trained soldiers, just people who happen to have weapons. And the list of enemies in chapter 4, verse 7, indicates that Israel is actually surrounded by enemies. All these geographies are north, south, east, and west. So what a discouragement this could have been to the work. As soon as they've gotten some progress, some momentum, right away there are threats. You ever feel that way in the Christian life? You make progress in trusting God in one area, and then the bottom seems to fall out in another area. I've been reading a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress with my girls, and the author there captured this dynamic well. Through the whole story, Pilgrim, the main character... Moves forward from the city of destruction to the celestial city. But you can hardly read a page of the story without there being some sort of challenge, setback, or adversity. Page after page after page. All the while you know he's going to make it to the city. For Christians, adversity is not meant to be viewed by us as a setback. But actually, as a sign that God is working in you. When God begins demonstrating his greatness through you, opposition will come. And often it will increase before it lets up. We'll be ridiculed for believing that God can work through our weakness. We'll be threatened for giving our energies to proclaim and promote a message that tells people there's no way for sinners to be saved but through Jesus. In adversity, remember our great and awesome God. He is the one who says his way is to work this way. To work through weakness. To work in our trials. The very thing that scoffers will ridicule us for believing God is the one who calls people to come to him for forgiveness in no other name by Jesus. The very path enemies of God will wholeheartedly and openly reject and push against us for. Remember that this opposition is against the great God. And you are simply sharing in that because you are God's. You are God's people. In this adversity, Nehemiah remembers God and he prays to God. If the greatness of God is being questioned or laughed at, we hear in Nehemiah's prayer, trust that God in his greatness will know what to do. This is the wonderful opportunity for us in prayer. To let God know about our plight, about our situation. To let him know and then... To rest and let him decide how he wants to put his power to work in our life. Look again at the encouragement from Nehemiah to the people in the face of an impending attack. Verse 14: Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. These two instructions he gives them: don't be afraid and remember God. They're all over the Bible. They're everywhere. And that repetition should speak loudly to us and helpfully to us. What a comfort that God doesn't want us to be afraid. He doesn't want us to live a life of fear. He himself is giving himself as the way to be free from fear. Remember, he's the great and awesome God for you. You don't need to be afraid. Church, remember God who is great even in the face of cultural opposition. If we're persecuted for preaching Christ, we will not be the first generation of Christians to suffer in that way. If our society puts Christians in the crosshairs or in the opposition disrupts every facet of our lives, be it our gatherings or our reputations or our civic rights, we will only be following the lead of Christ... The apostles and our brothers and sisters throughout the world who have gone that way ahead of us. Do not be afraid. The folly of the world is in thinking that human opposition to God will defeat God. The wisdom of God is that he's great and awesome. And will defeat any who oppose him. That's what he does in Nehemiah. You notice all all the bluster of these enemies, all the scheming, all the plan making. But the attack never comes, does it? No army ever advances. No, No spear is ever hurled against the weak wall. They never come. God hears the prayers of Nehemiah and all the people pray following Nehemiah verse 9. And God keeps the enemy away. He frustrates their plan. What a great and awesome God. He wins the battle without using, let alone losing, a single soldier. (laughs) When we remember him, we can have great courage. It's when we forget the Lord that's when we lose heart in the battle or we begin trying to fight with our own might. Are you losing heart because it seems like evil is winning? It is an awful reality to see sin and death and its consequences all around us. Enough to tempt any person to want to give up. And that's not to mention the war that we know that's going on inside us. The, the accusations we hear, the shame we feel, the doubts we experience, the guilt that regularly leads us to think there cannot be hope for us to change. There's no way for us to press on to serve Jesus faithfully one more day, let alone years or a lifetime. At times in my life, this onslaught of darkness has seemed so great, I felt like it was effectively drowning me. That is the heart of fear, isn't it? That whatever it is that we're afraid of, when all is said and done, not even God's grip on us will hold. When the flood of adversity comes, we fear we will be lost, or we will be let go. Oh, friend, if you're not hiding in Jesus, that will happen to you. Death will come and it will sweep you away into hell. And there's no living fear you felt that matches experiencing a world of death. That's why it's such good news that Christ is a refuge for the lost. So you can be saved From the flood of God's right and holy judgment against your opposition to Him, you can be saved by running to the refuge of Jesus Christ and hiding in Him as He takes the wrath you deserve on Himself and He gives you righteousness and life and forgiveness in His name. That's the refuge for you. Don't be swept away. And there's so many here who are right now hiding in Jesus. I praise God for the greatness and awesomeness of God that we see in this room, of how He's worked and He's, he's rescued us and saved us when we would have made such an evil thing out of the life he, he privileged us with. But instead He's reclaimed us and redeemed us. He's your mighty fortress, and you're tied to the anchor that is Christ. And so I just want to encourage you in that position. You do not need to be afraid of being lost. No matter the despair discouragement or doubts you wrestle with. No matter how bad it may seem or may get, not one of Jesus' people will be lost. Listen to his voice as he refutes our deepest fears. Not one of the precious people of God will go down in the fight. Because we were never sent into the battle over death. This is what I want you to see. In the greatest battle ever waged, God versus our death, we never even picked up a weapon. God sent a prince, a warrior king, his own son, to be the lone soldier of light against the kingdom of our darkness. Only Jesus entered the fray. Only Jesus threw himself under the wrath of God against our sin. Only Jesus walked down into death. And he did it to defeat death so that death could never touch those who hide in Jesus. You find it curious like I do how Nehemiah told the people to dress and line up for battle on the wall. And none of them ever actually shot an arrow or threw a spear in the conflict. And when Nehemiah tells them in verse 14 to fight, he encourages them in verse 20. It's going to be God who fights for you. Apparently with all their armor and their preparation, weak though it may have been, they were not going to be the way that God would win the battle. They were going to be witnesses to God winning the battle. You see the difference? God's people were positioned to watch God win and benefit from his victory. How's your battle against sin going right now? I wonder if you find right now you you keep losing. And I want us from God's word to think about how we're going about that fight. Perhaps you've been thinking that your part in the battle is to get up every day and fight the enemy and your own temptation and your sin. Beat it back with your Bible study and your discipline and your powerful praying. Fighting with an expectation that at each day's end, we will be able to survey all the victories that we have won by discipline and devotion. I personally have never had much success with that strategy. Not for any amount of time, at least. What if in the heat of battle against sin in our life, God truly wants us, he truly means what he says, that he wants us to remember That he is great and awesome. That his intention for us. Is to wait on him. Watch for him. And witness him win for us. Against our sin. That his spirit in us is more than just a cloud of good feelings, but the spirit is armed within us with death-shattering resurrection power to crush sin in our life. What if? And this is why we talk about things like Bible study and praying, reading God, using God's means in the pursuit of holiness. It's not so that we make ourselves stronger without God. It's so that we make ourselves more familiar with the God who is strong for us. That's why we read about this great and awesome work in the Bible. That's why we come here and we sing praises to our great and awesome God. Here is the place that we get to lay, on our, lay our eyes on all the redeemed, won by God's great love. This is why we pray. This is why we encourage each other. This is why we fast. This is why we give our time and our money and our lives. This is why we come back again and again to the Lord's table that he's prepared for us. It is to remember God. All the great things that he's done, is doing, and will do. Every time we give in to sin, we can be sure that in some way we have forgotten our great and awesome God. Either in callous disobedience or in cowardly defeat. When we try to fight against sin without God, we lose. But when we want God to fight for us and wait on him in the fight and watch him fight, I think you'll find victories will start to come. Moses told Israel, Israel, excuse me, with their back to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army bearing down, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. When Paul writes to the Ephesian church in chapter 6, he tells them to dress themselves for battle with the armor God gives. And when the attack comes, Paul doesn't say, yell the war cry and charge out for God and glory. That's not what Paul says. He says, stand. And do all you can to stand. And after standing for a while, Paul will write in Philippians 3, the Lord Jesus Christ will return and he'll finish what he started. He'll transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enabled him to subject all things to himself. Christian, our part in the war against sin is not to win. It's not to win the entire war. Our part is to believe that God will win for us. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. If you don't believe it from me, believe it from God. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So when the battle happens in your heart and temptations to envy, lust, anger, fear, hate, jealousy come. You engage that enemy by believing That God who lives in you is greater than the temptation you face. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in, in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we gear up and we go to battle every day remembering that God is great and awesome. And he is fighting our battles, not just on the outside like Israel, but now because of what Christ has done, he fights from the inside. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The Son of God in me, who loved me and gave himself for me. How great and awesome God is. In adversity, he fights for us. That's why we can fight without fear. Third, and finally, in uncertainty, in uncertainty. So we thought about weakness, arena number one. We thought about adversity, arena number two. And now thirdly, in uncertainty, remember that our great and awesome God is ahead of us. So we can be faithful today. Let's read the rest of this passage. Chapter 4, starting verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction. Half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. The threat of attack in the immediate was over, but Israel didn't know for how long. So Nehemiah leads his people into living in a wartime mentality. Half the people would be soldiers, half would be construction workers, and everyone would be ready to fight at all times. And this is how they worked, day and night, until the wall was done. Now, if you're an efficiency kind of guy like I am, you'll you'll realize that if people are only working one-handed or at half your strength, progress is necessarily going to slow down on this project. They had been making such quick strides. And now half their manpower had to be dedicated to standing watch instead of building. There's great uncertainty looming. And Nehemiah leads the people to be faithful in the work. Would they be attacked? Not sure. But they'd be faithful day in and day out to be prepared if battle came. Would the wall ever get finished at this rate? Not sure. But they would keep on stacking the rocks. Uncertainty can also be the thing, often be the thing that threatens our faithful endurance. Our efforts in holiness wane because we don't know how long we're going to have to do the hard work of watching and waiting for Jesus. Our commitment to living and sold out love for God weakens the more we watch evil seem to prosper. When will God make good in his promise? Will Jesus come back? Will we die before we see any good work completed? In uncertainty, we don't always know just how God is working in the moments. Can't always see just how much faithfulness is going to cost you today or in the future. There is just so much we do not know. That's why we need to remember God. He's not constrained by limits like we are. He is great and he is awesome. And because he is... He's going ahead of us, and he's finishing the great work of redemption. I loved Matthew 24 that we read earlier, that Kyle read for us, how it fits in here. You realize that as these people, stationed as they were to stack rocks on one another, Jesus comes and says, effectively, none of it really matters, because I've come now to build a new, new temple myself. I've come to tear down all the misconceptions, all the obstacles, I've come to fulfill the law which stands opposed to you. I've come to do it all. In me you will find the new living place for the people of God. He said in Matthew 24. These people could not have known. That Jesus was effectively going to make an illustration of this. To show his greatness in his work. But that's what God was doing. Notice in verse 19 and 20. Nehemiah in this process recognizes a big vulnerability. The people are spread so thin on the wall. The enemy could attack anywhere and easily break through. So what was going to be the game plan for that scenario? Well, Nehemiah says, we're going to keep remembering God. We're going to remember God that he's the same as he had already been. God is in the future going to fight for us as he has already done. He frustrated the enemy once, God will fight Israel's enemy again in the future. With that kind of confidence and the experience that they had not needed to do anything in the first attack and defeat, you might think Nehemiah would have just said, well, let's just disarm. Let's disarm, let's get back to 100% efficiency on this building project. Let's dedicate everyone to that. Now, had finishing the wall been the point of all of this, maybe that's what Nehemiah would have done. But perhaps we can see by now, finishing the wall is not the point of what God is doing with his people in Nehemiah. God, in this, is retraining his people about what it means to be his people. These returned exiles away so long, they needed to remember God again. They were exiled for, from Jerusalem because they forgot God, because they depended too much on their own strength. Now they're back, and in this endeavor, they're learning to remember God. Oh, it's, it's God that we depend on. Oh, it's God that we turn to and pray to. It's God we look to for protection. It's, it's us that he has claimed as his people. It's his love that's going to keep us. So with this ragtag group of people who were not specialized in any of this, army or building, they are remembering God's hands build God's people. They're remembering with steady opposition, God fights his people's battles. And in the face of uncertainty, they're remembering that God takes care of his people in his plan. Perhaps Nehemiah and the people at some point begin to realize that they could or could not finish the wall. They could or could not get attacked. And in either and all situations, God will still be the great and awesome God. When we're unsettled in uncertainty, we will then forget God and attempt to take control of our lives. And I think from that point, when we start in that direction, we're going to get very confused about what faithfulness is. Because we're going to start defining faithfulness as something that we do for God instead of what God does in us. You see, faithfulness happens when we feel afraid and uncertainty, and yet we trust God to work in our future. We lean on Him to work. Faithfulness is when we rely on God. Faithfulness is being content in knowing God may alter the course of our planned lives today in order to show the world how great he is and what he'll do and what we have not planned. Israel, as she dressed for conflict and worked on a project she wasn't sure would get done, made herself available to be used if God wanted and when God wanted to call her to action. Church, that's what God wants to do with us. Get up each day knowing this day is, is what you know you have. And that's it. Get ready. Expecting today is a day God will employ you to fight against sin for his honor. And trust that whatever we do or do not do in our jobs, in our families, our dreams, our church, our lives... God is going to finish the most important work in the future. One day, when we or our children or our grandchildren or our great grandchildren or our great 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 grandchildren are standing as we pray they will faithfully at watch, suddenly, A trumpet of war will sound in the sky. And whoever's eye is here to look. Will look up and see something no human eye could have ever seen before. The sky will open. And from some unseen realm. A rider. On a white horse will step forward. The man on the horse his name is faithful and true. And in righteousness he will come to judge. And make war. His eyes will look like fire and his crown will reveal he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Whoever will see him will know that this is Jesus. The word of God. The champion. Come to wage the final battle. As witnesses to his greatness and to this final great act. Armies of angels and saints will follow behind him. Armed. Armed. And yet he will be the one who fights. And the word that comes from his mouth like a sword will end the war that has raged in human history. The almighty God will end evil forever. In his judgment, all will recognize him. The great and awesome God. And then he'll finish another great work. The work of his mercy, which he started long ago and advanced at the cross, all his people, I trust so many here, I pray all here, all his people bought by his blood will then become what we're longing for in our weakness today, and what we're hoping for in our adversity today, and what we're believing for through our uncertainty today. In that day, The Christ who is in us will finish the fight against who we used to be. And we will become like him. This will be the greatest thing God has ever done in each of us. And we will rejoice. Because he's our great and awesome God. Let's pray. God, in your greatness and awesomeness, as we've seen this morning, if this is how you work, through weakness and adversity and uncertainty, all the things you, you know in our weakness, we, we so often want to avoid. Lord, help us to, to welcome these things as the arena in which you will work great things through us. We pray in weakness, you would show your power. We pray in our, weak, in our, in our adversity, you would show yourself to be the one who fights. We look to you, God, in uncertainty as the one who goes ahead of us, who will complete the work. Lord, build our faith in you. Do great things in us for the honor of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.